0: I wonder if uh, you could imagine this scene, this picture of being in church and uh, a man asks if he can say a few words and he stands up to speak. And his message is so captivating that people are completely and utterly astonished and amazed. Well, that's what the word that's used here. The people, verse 27, the people were all so amazed. In his gospel, Mark uses six different words that we would translate as amazement or awe or wonder or uh, astonishment, because that's what Jesus constantly did. He constantly filled people with a sense of wonder, a sense of awe, and a sense of astonishment. And even for those of us who claim to belong to him, who claim to be Christians, I would suggest to you that we're in a very dangerous position when we don't see the wonder of Jesus, when we don't see the, the awe that, uh, and the astonished, when we're not astonished by Jesus anymore, when we become blasé about Jesus Christ. Jesus was not the only person who performed miracles, and he was not the only person who taught, but there was something very different about him, and it, there was an, an authority, something that that we desperately need. We live in a, in a very pluralistic society where there's a great deal of confusion, where the idea that you can know God at all is people are very skeptical about. And people are often left just with their own personal notion or their own personal image. Any kind of, of authoritative teaching is deemed to be very, very suspicious. But what I want to do is, as, as we look at this passage, I want to see why the teaching of Jesus is so important. I don't want to equate that with... Necessarily, with my teaching or with teaching that goes on in the church. And I don't want you to equate it with necessarily how you feel. I want you to see it as something that is objective and something that is wonderful and something that is really important for you. Um, what I was trying to say to the children is very, very important for us spiritually. Some of us want to run before we can walk. Some of us think, well, that looks quite easy. We could do that. And we can't. We, we need to be taught by Jesus Christ. A Christian is, after all, a disciple. And a disciple is someone who learns. And we are constantly learning. I don't know if you've met someone like this. Um, I think sometimes, to be honest, I give this impression of, of being a know-it-all. It, it is horrendous when you meet someone who knows absolutely everything. It doesn't matter what you say, they know it. Um, it's actually a very immature position. The more you know, the more you should realize that you do not know. So let's look first of all then at the authority of the teaching of Jesus. He taught in the synagogue. Uh, now, let me say something about this, what a synagogue was. Because it's important in our understanding. It was primarily a teaching institution. Three things occurred in a synagogue. Prayer, the reading of God's word, and the exposition of God's word. The temple, on the other hand, had sacrifice and worship. It's interesting that you, you'll meet people in, in the free church tradition and the Scottish reform tradition who will say, our worship is based upon the synagogue, not the temple. That is just not true. Because the synagogue, they did not sing. At all, and we we do. There was no music, no singing, or sacrifice in the synagogue. And Christian worship, in that sense, can no more be, I think, you would call it synagogical, if that's such a word, than it can be temple worship. It's it's that the Christian worship is a is a more than that. It's the bringing together of these different things. In the synagogue itself, there was a ruler of the synagogue, who was not the guy who did the teaching. It was responsible for administration and for organization of services. There were people who were, um, I guess we might call them deacons nowadays. They were distributors of the alms. They took in the money and they gave it to the poor. There was a group of people called the Chazan who were responsible for taking out the sacred scrolls, for cleaning the synagogue, for the blowing of blasts on the silver trumpet to announce the Sabbath, and for the basic education of the children. What was interesting about the synagogue, there was no permanent teacher. The ruler of the synagogue would call on any competent teacher. So, for example, if we were right now a synagogue, well, first of all, all you women would be upstairs, uh, and all the men would be downstairs, but we're not, so stay where we are. Uh, but if we were a synagogue right now, and um, let's say that uh, Colin here was the ruler of the synagogue... Uh, He would be standing up and he'd be looking and he'd say "Um, Obviously again not to any of the women Because that wasn't allowed And he'd be looking at you men and saying You look like a wise man Would you like to come and say a few words And especially if you are a stranger Come up and say uh, a few words and see what, what happens Well Jesus was known to be a man with a message And so he goes in and he is called to teach Now to be honest his teaching really surprised people Because you went to synagogue more or less because you had to And you sat in synagogue and you thought about what you were doing the previous day and what you were going to be doing the next day, and just as people have done in worship services and in church services for many, many times. But when Jesus spoke, it really surprised them. Look at verse 22. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. The teachers of the law had authority. That was the point. They were were, um, given a position of authority. But when they spoke, it just did not connect with people. When Jesus spoke, there was an authority. Let me say something about the teachers of the law. They were, um, the word actually originally meant clerk. So they were clerks. And their job was to take the Torah the five books of the law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, to study those books. And they believed that everything for life would be contained in those books. Now, obviously, it wasn't. So what you did was you um, interpreted the books so that it would include absolutely everything. Uh, A modern-day equivalent would be to say, uh, the Bible says nothing about computers or iPods or anything. But it must do because it's saying about everything. So you would find some verse that managed to talk about an iPod. Now, I I challenge you. Come back next week with the scriptural teaching on the iPod. Uh, That would, or even on television. But they really studied so they could do that. All the rules and regulations for life could be worked out. And it was the scribes who had that task. They had a threefold task. One was to transmit and teach the law and its developments never written down, but memorized. They then had to extract rules for every situation in life. And again, just to bring that into our context, imagine in St. Peter's, let's just take the elders and wise men that they are. And every situation in your life, you said, I got to go ask the elders. So what course do you take in university? Must go and ask the elders. Who do I marry? Go ask the elders. What job do I take? Go ask the elders. And the the notion was that the scribes would be able to give judgment in individual cases. Now, the trouble is, every time a case was decided on, then that was like a new law. So, Rabbi so-and-so said this. And you had literally thousands and thousands and thousands of, well, the equivalent of, of books of laws that people would study and contemplate and so on. Now, when Jesus taught... It was different from what they taught. How? Jesus spoke with a personal authority. He spoke with the finality of the word of God. On the one hand, you would have the scribes sitting there and saying, uh, you're asking me something, and the scribes would say, "Mm, well, uh, 200 years ago, Rabbi so-and-so said this, and then Rabbi so-and-so from this place said this, and then someone else would interject and say, no, no, but Rabbi so-and-so said this, and they eventually, whoever was standing up and speaking, would stand up and talk about all the things that people had said in the past and what he thought and how subsection point C of point D of paragraph 21 of the third commentary on the first verse of Exodus was so significant and so important. The scribes often rambled on about trivialities. Jesus spoke about the main issues. Jesus used lots of illustrations. They were beyond that that was trivial to them. They, their sermons were generally as dry as dust. He spoke with love. Their lack of love is quite clear. He spoke with authority. He spoke from the mind and the heart of the father. It was the truth. They drew water from broken cisterns. He drew from himself. And there was, just something, there was just something immensely attractive about that teaching of Jesus Christ. Now, I want to kind of apply that a little bit to what we do today. And why we even listen, bother listening to teaching and preaching. There are preachers today who teach like the scribes. And when you find uh, any preacher going like that, and I would include myself in this category, please make sure that uh, you correct us, but do so in a non-scribal way. There are preachers who teach like the scribes. They cite various authorities and they speak in either banalities or trivialities. I got sent something. I think it's absolutely, <coughs> totally brilliant. Um, a comedian called Alan Bennett from, I think I think it was in the Goon Show, actually, a long time, an old-fashioned comedian. Uh, if you Google this, I think you can get it. He does this imitation of... Um, A vicar doing a sermon at his school. And it is an astonishing piece of um, satire, actually. And it begins, you know, my, my, my sermon is from the 29th verse of the 14th chapter of the book of Genesis. My brother Esau is a hairy man, but I am a smooth man. And he repeats it three times. My brother Esau is a hairy man, but I am a smooth man. My brother Esau is a hairy man. And I, you know it goes on like this. And he does it in this sonorous um, sing-song, preachy voice and so on. And I know it, it is very, very humorous. But it's also very, very sad. Because like most humor, it identifies something that is real. I used to, I, I certainly remember at school having preachers or teachers come in. And uh, it's just so extraordinary. Or you go to a church sometimes And you hear someone who puts on a preacher's voice. The sing-song preacher's voice. And you listen on the radio. Sometimes there's no authority. There's just waffle anecdotes and religious jargon. And it's really devoid of any real contact. And really devoid of any real content. And and any meaning whatsoever. And it's just... There are just so many examples of that. And it terrifies me. You know, you just think, oh... Do I really, you know, could I really sound like that? Do I really sound like that? There's another style of preaching as well, or teaching. There are those of us who seem to act as though we are, are Christ, where, where people say, you will listen to me. I've heard that many, many times in churches, where someone almost closes the Bible and says, now I'm going to tell you. And because of who they are, and because of their voice, and because of their, their authority, They expect people to listen to them. And sometimes it works. It's an authoritarianism, but it doesn't really have any authority. There's a more subtle version of this. A kind of legalistic authority that goes under the guise of Christ. I've had an interesting week um, trying to put together two offices. So my study at home, I gutted it completely. I dusted in places that I didn't know existed. And it taught me, by the way, a very important lesson, that all these grand ideas, I hate throwing anything out, so this was traumatic for me, so please be patient with me, uh, I, I um, put stuff away and say, well, I'll, I'll file that there and I'll use that later, and it was only when I came across things that I filed 15 years ago and have never touched, I thought, no, something has to go. Well, 15 bags, rubbish bags of books and papers and everything, and it's still all not gone. Uh, Just to try and clear the thing out But there was a whole load of tapes Now what use are tapes now? So I got rid of a whole lot of tapes Some of them quite sadly Some I couldn't And there was some old sermon tapes And I found one And I thought I wonder what this is And I put it on And I realised why I've got it And I've kept it Because it's a relic for me Of a forgotten past And hopefully one that will always be forever past It's a sermon that was preached That um, if it wasn't amusing It would be depressing And it really was depressing The sing-song voice, the pietistic nonsense, the extended vocabulary, speaking very slowly and monotone, and every now and then just raising the voice a wee bit in in, in that kind of way. But a major part of the sermon was actually an attack on this congregation, Um, and the man went on about, they even had dancing, and uh, just assumed attack, dancing and different things, Because we'd had a Kaylee or something. And I listened to it and I thought, I would, if I believed in this kind of religion, if that's what I had to listen to, I I think I, I, you know, you almost feel like you'd want to end your life. It was just absolutely so, so, so legalistic and so depressing. And sometimes people do that kind of legalism that comes and then really, I think, perversely attach it to the name of Jesus Christ. It's not an exposition of the Scriptures. It's a use of tradition. It's a use of of culture. And it's just so devastatingly wrong. Or another kind of preaching is that you get if you watch God television, and please don't, get a life, do something. But if you watch God television... 90% 90% of the preachers you'll get will be preachers who tell you anecdotes and give you lots of moralistic stories about how to be right and also about how to give them money. And again, it just it doesn't carry the authority of Jesus Christ. So what's the solution to that? And I'm not critiquing those and saying, well, there's no danger of, of, of anyone in this church doing that. There's an enormous danger of us doing that. It's a temptation. It's why I ask you to pray for the preaching for all of us who are involved in teaching or preaching, because it's so easy to fall into the legalistic route or to fall into the just anecdotes or just fall into um, the the authoritarian point of view. What's the solution? Well, the solution surely is this. It's to be the preaching of Jesus Christ in this way. Our preaching is to be Christocentric, Christ-centered, Christ-pointed to himself the preacher never points to himself. That should be the, at least that should be the case. In Luke's account of this story, uh, at least we think it's the same one, Christ reads from Isaiah and then says, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. It's an astonishing statement. It's saying the fulfillment is Jesus Christ. The teaching is not preacher-centric. It's not church-centric. And it's not you-centric. It's not it's not. F- Primarily focused and centered on you. That may see initially that may be somewhat surprising and you, may be somewhat depressing. You go to school and you learn something, and it's not about you. It's not about you. And you come to church and you, you want to be helped and all this kind of stuff, but it's not about you. It's about Jesus Christ. How does that help? It does precisely because it's not about you. See. Some people would say, if only we could have Jesus come and speak as he spoke in Capernaum that day. But we do. When the word of Christ is proclaimed, not in the scribal tradition, not in the legalistic way, but when the word of Christ is proclaimed with Christ at the center, with Christ being the purpose, then it is Christ speaking to us today. He is present. It's not as if he were, where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst. And what's happening when you're being taught God's word is this, that the darkness is being confronted with the light. It's a demonstration of the power of God, Romans 1.16, for I am not ashamed of the power of, God, of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The darkness is not driven out by Christless preaching. The demons are not defeated by those who would portray Christ as anything other than the way, the truth, and the life. The word of Christ is not dead dogma or meaningless and contentless liberalism. The word of Christ breathes life, changes, transforms, and brings hope. The teaching of Jesus Christ is practical teaching. Samuel Rutherford was said of him that his doctrine was all application and his application was all doctrine. Now, practical, not in the sense of how to, but rather who to. It's in the sense of just drawing us out of ourselves and drawing us to see Jesus and seeing things in the context of Jesus Christ. Let me say one other thing that goes against the grain culturally for many people. It is actually teaching. And when you teach, that's patience. And anyone here who's a teacher, If you ever had this idea, what's the film with Michelle Pfeiffer when she goes in and and teaches all these kids instantly and they all turn from being hoodlums, well, not all of them. A couple of them get shot, but um, some of them turn from being hoodlums into being wonderfully interested in poetry and all this kind of stuff. You know, by the way, I think we underestimate um, the role and the importance of teachers. It used to be in our culture that being a teacher was pretty well near the top of the pile, like being a doctor or being a minister. Well, ministers and teachers have gone way down. Uh, doctors are still up there for a, a wee while. Uh, your turn will come. But ministers and teachers, it's just, and I think that's a real, real shame because there's almost no one more important than a teacher teaching us, teaching children, and not just teaching children. And teaching is something that just takes time. And that's the same with us with Jesus Christ. You see, we want this instant experience, instant Christianity, instant feeling. We don't want teaching. Principal Donald MacLeod of the Free Church College went to speak at uh, Edinburgh University CU several years ago and was absolutely infuriated when they said to him, "Um, Look, our students have had a hard week. Don't give them anything too long or too heavy. You know, make it simple. And then he then endured an hour of, shall we say, the most fuzzy type of worship possible. And he then stood up to speak. Now, they said the wrong thing to him because he started, invent, he does this. He invented words in his head that don't even exist. And he just went for it. He preached for an hour and it was the most apparently uh, incredible thing. But when he came out, he said to the, the president of the CU, you are doctors, you are studying psychology, you are studying science. If you're not going to use your mind and learn about Jesus Christ, you shouldn't even bother attempting to worship him. And he was spot on. We need, we, we need to be taught. And when you're, you're taught Christ, there is a response. See, because what happens is there's an authority of Jesus over the devils. A man in their synagogue was possessed by an evil spirit, cried out, "What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God." You can imagine the situation, very, very unusual. The whole atmosphere changes when the service is interrupted. Incidentally, Jesus didn't want the witness of the evil spirits, and that's why he dealt with it. It does change. It's only ever happened to me about three or four times in my life. Uh, The most spectacular prayer meeting we've ever had in St. Peter's was when about 20 of us turned up one Wednesday night, and I looked at people, and they were all looking really wrecked and tired and all the usual stuff. So I said, oh, we'll just... I'm just going to introduce this and I'll talk for five minutes. And I started speaking about Paul, read the passage about Paul saying that I am the chief of sinners. And about two minutes into it, there was a guy who'd come in and he sat at the back and he shouted out in the middle of just when I was starting talking, that's garbage. Well, I tell you, every single person woke up. I've never seen a congregation so alert. They just, it was just, it was quite, quite incredible. And I thought, what do I do with this? Is he drunk? No. Is he stoned? Probably. Um, what, what, I thought, well, let's go. Tell me why it's garbage. And he, he said, well, because uh, Paul was a Christian. And you're saying he was a blasphemer and a violent man. He says, my name's Paul and I'm a blasphemer and a violent man. But you're talking about Paul in the Bible. He was a Christian. Well, I mean, what a great opportunity. So we started and uh, spoke. And um, I remember uh, Alistair. I'm praying at one point. In fact, the best bit of the whole thing. Imagine if this happened just now. You guys would really—you'd be on your feet and out of here. This guy stood up and he said, "How do you know you're a Christian? How can you possibly know that?" He said to me, and then he looked at me and he pointed at me and says, "You shut up." He says, "What about the rest of them? What about the rest of you? How do you know you're Christians?" Well, I'm telling you, people were sinking like that, and it was just—I mean, it was great. If you'd done it as a drama, it couldn't have been better. Well, you imagine Jesus is in the synagogue. People go to the synagogue. Mom, do we have to go to the synagogue again? Yeah, you have to go to the synagogue. Sit with your father. Be quiet. will be over and done with soon. Jesus stands up and he teaches, and it's wonderful. And then someone, it has an imp- immediate impact, and this man stands up and shouts out, what do you want with us? Jesus of Nazareth, have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. It's extraordinary. Let me say something about the evil spirits. Because there's so much bad teaching on this. And just so many extremes. There, on the one hand, there are people say, surely you don't believe in evil spirits and devils nowadays. Wasn't that for when people needed to explain away mental illness? Well, we need to heed the warning of C.S. Lewis that the greatest victory the devil can have is either to make us believe that he does not exist or to make us believe that he's more powerful than he is. It's like in the film The Usual Suspects. Uh, Kaiser Soze, does Kaiser Soze exist or not? His greatest thing was to make people think he was a myth. If you haven't, I don't know what I'm talking about, never mind. But... <sighs> see, there are people who say there are no evil spirits. That, biblically, that doesn't work. But there are other Christians who see evil spirits everywhere. And that was certainly the case for many of the Jews in Jesus' day. They, went from, they took from Genesis 6, verses 1 to 8, that two angels were attracted by women called Asael and Shematsiai, One returned to God, the other satisfied his lust, and bore children who were demons. They were called the Mazakim, the malignant ones, the harmful ones. And they were called the demons of blindness, leprosy, heart disease. They were especially active with children after dark. I mean, look, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Watch out, the bogeyman will get you, well, the mazakeem will get you. They worked with serpents, with bulls. The children had guardian angels to protect them from them. There was an enormous amount of superstition. It's almost as though there are two ways in the world. There's the Western way, which tries to explain everything away. And there's the Eastern way, which attributes everything to evil spirits. There's a third way, the Bible's way. And in the Bible, in the New Testament, there is a clear distinction made between demon possession and madness. And I think that uh, we need to be aware of that. I think that the more human society or our society turns away from God, the more we do open ourselves to demonic forces. But don't see demons everywhere. You know, people march around casting out demons all over the place. I mean, I've had people try and cast demons out of me, and it's actually really, really funny, unless you take it seriously. It's also really freaky at times. And also, when you get people who come up and say, well, you know, I've, I believe I have a demon of laziness, or I have a demon, you know, Well, I feel then like doing an exorcism complete with slapping and water and the whole lot. It's not the way that it works. But we cannot say, look, there is no demon possession. By the way, there's another aspect to bring into this as well that you can think about. It appears in the Bible that there were periods where there was a lot of miraculous activity and a lot of demonic possession. And three periods in the Bible. And at other times it was much, much less. And that also may well be the case. But the point about the story here is just simply this, that Jesus defeats the devils. Not with spells, not with mechanical repetitions, not with waving of crucifixes and so on. Not that kind of of Hollywood stroke uh, Roman Catholic exorcism. The devil is defeated when Jesus is at the center of people's lives. Matthew let's just turn briefly to Matthew chapter 12 verse 43 Matthew 12 verse 43 when an evil spirit comes out of a man it goes to arid areas seeking rest and does not find it then it says I will return to the house I left when it arrives it finds a house unoccupied swept clean and put in order then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself and they go and live there and the final condition of that man is worse than the first this is how it will be with this wicked generation this demon said, "What have you come to destroy us? That's why Jesus came. 1 John 3, 8, we read it. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. The victory of Christ over the powers of darkness is a central feature of the Gospels. And that's what we are looking for. We are looking for the victory of Jesus Christ over the power of darkness. Whether it is the extreme of demonic possession, whether it is, it is demonic influence, or whether it is, is just... The evil that exists in the world. We're told that we do not believe. Because we are under the prince of this world. You may not be demonically possessed. But you can live in darkness. You don't need to be possessed if you live in darkness. And Christ came to drive out the darkness. Now I think that it is absolutely amazing that this man was in Capernaum was probably a regular attender at the synagogue and never heard anything to really disturb him. But a demonically possessed man could sit in a, in a place where people were worshipping, where God's word was being proclaimed and he heard nothing to disturb him until Jesus came. See, that's the trouble, isn't it, with Christ's less teaching. People can listen to lackluster teaching for years and not notice. They are being spiritually starved and not notice. And that in general, by the way, is what's happened in Scotland. There's a famine of hearing the word of the Lord. I did thought I would try this out. And I thought I'll listen to the sermon on Radio Scotland at half six this morning. When most of you were probably deep in the land of Nod. And uh, I put it on. And I lasted about 15 minutes. That was it. It was, well, actually, the sermon probably wasn't much longer than that. The sermon was three fairy stories, (coughs) in effect three parables, except they weren't parables, they were moralistic tales. There's not a thing of Christ in them, not a thing. Not really a thing of God, not a thing of the Word. And this is being taught in Edinburgh. I was just absolutely astounded. And then even more astounded that this was a repeat from several years ago because apparently Radio Scotland thought it was one of their better sermons. It's really astonishing. People are not amazed by that kind of teaching. People are amazed by Jesus Christ. See, Mark notes that these people were amazed. But he also notes that it does not necessarily lead to faith in him. In fact, if you go back to Uh, Matthew chapter 11 and verse 23. Look what Jesus says there. In fact, verse 20. Jesus began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were performed because they did not repent. And then down at verse 23. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted up to the skies? No, you will go down to the depths. If the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you that it would be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. People were amazed at Jesus' teaching. People were amazed at Jesus' power over the devil. But I suspect that it remained in their heads rather than in their hearts. Amazement can be the first step towards faith, or it can be the first step towards being offended. You see, when you've got preaching that's focused on Jesus Christ, it's not the case that everyone will become Christian. In fact, it is the case that you will get fierce reactions at times. The demon knew who Jesus was. They believe and know that Jesus is the son of God, the Christ. They believe and tremble, says James. But it's not enough to have a head knowledge. There has to be a heart knowledge. Martin Luther put it brilliantly. The life of Christianity consists in personal pronouns. So Jesus is speaking, but are you listening? And let's say in terms of our Christian testimony and proclamation... Does it answer the questions people ask about Jesus? Do we meet the felt needs of people? Can we locate the areas of disease and pain that need healing? And the task here is huge, much, much more than uh, perceived understandings of evangelism and exorcism. It's about God's word for the whole of society. It is about evangelism. It is about justice. It is about healing. It is about deliverance. It is about peace. It is about communicating the Christian faith. The world is a dark place, and we need to demonstrate the authority and the power of Jesus in the modern world in both word and deed. We desperately need the power of Christ. And in that respect, we need the authority of Jesus. It's one of the great comforts as a preacher and also one of the great challenges. It doesn't depend on eloquence or or. The authority that we have from our own learning. There's always someone better than you. You don't play that kind of game. It does depend on the authority and power of Jesus Christ. Matthew 28:18. Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. All authority is given to Jesus. So he tells us, as the one who has all authority, I commission you, I command you, I challenge you to go and teach. To go and make disciples, to go and baptize, to go and teach them to obey everything I have commanded with you. And and I will be with you to the very end of the age. We have a fantastic message. We have a fantastic gospel. It's not ours. It's not the free churches. It's not St. Peter's. It's not whatever particular group that we happen to belong to. It is the message of Jesus Christ. And it's a message that is absolutely relevant for every single person that you know. And you think, how can I tell? Well, it's the same problem that we face with a demon-possessed person. It's the same problem we face with ourselves and with everybody else. The heart is desperately wicked, deceitful above all things. Our minds are are not able to think as clearly and rationally as, as we think we do. Our society is so much geared against the teaching of Jesus Christ. But that's just again where it comes in. There's the darkness and this is the light. The light coming in to the darkness. We pray that God would give us His light and that we would be able to communicate it. Let's pray.